0: So I'm in a good mood this morning, which is a little bit odd because we're coming up on what is my least favorite time of the year, really my least favorite month. My favorite month is November because we got no shave November. Uh, My least favorite month of the year is February. I don't dislike February because it's cold. I don't mind the cold. I don't dislike February because I think Valentine's Day is cliche and it was invented by candy companies to, to try to get you to spend money. I dislike February because I'm really never once confident in how to spell it. I mean, I know there's the R in it, the the silent R in the middle. Um, I know that's there, but still, every time I write it, it like there's autocorrect in my head that says that can't go. Like you know when you type something, and it gets the little red squiggly line. That's in my head every time that I type it. Even sometimes say February, because am I saying it right? Am I? Should it be February? I I feel like. I feel like whoever came up with the word February was some really smart guy who's like, I'm just gonna mess with people and put a silent R right in the middle. Because where else is there a silent R? There's nowhere. And so, what I do the whole way through the month is I don't say, I don't spell the word at all. I just, every time in any written communication, it's Feb. Feb every single time. In fact, I think that's why they started abbreviating months all to begin with was because somebody couldn't figure out how to spell it. So I just say Feb. If you get an email from me, it'll say Feb because I don't want to look dumb. I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm talking about. And I was thinking about that and like really that drives so much of what we want to do is what we think other people are going to think about us. Like, are they going to think that I don't know what I'm doing? Are they going to think that I, I don't, uh, I'm not intelligent? Are they, what are they going to think? Um, and so I want to kind of call that out in relationship to this series that we're in with this idea of, of a Sabbath or a regular rhythm of rest, where you just slow down, you enjoy relationships, you take time to worship, you get yourself rejuvenated and restored for what comes ahead, that God created us to, to really thrive in that sort of cycle, but if we're honest, Oftentimes, we don't really rest largely because of what other people think, largely because of what they're going to judge us in in regards to about it, as opposed to saying, God, what is it that you would like me to do with my schedule? How have you designed me to be? And I can't just keep running on and on on this endless cycle, but instead there's got to be this rhythm of rest regardless of what everybody else thinks. And so we're going to challenge that now. To be honest, like when we talk about the Sabbath and this idea of rest rest from the scriptures, it's really it's their culture was dramatically different. I mean, what we think about when we think about rest is really one percent of how the nation of Israel, when God was was uh, designing how they should operate, it's really one percent of what it was for them. This was. This was what set them apart. This was what made them unique and different from all the other peoples in the world, that they would stop to actually have an entire day where they wouldn't work. It, it just was so, so incredibly distinct. In fact, uh, James Edwards, when he, he talks about this, he says, most of the world's religions, they, they venerate sacred places. Islam honors Mecca, Hinduism, the, the Ganges River, Shintoism, the island of Japan, uh, and then, then he goes on to say Judaism also has venerated Jerusalem and especially the temple, but it venerated something beyond it and perhaps above it time, the Sabbath. Whereas all these other religions had sort of this place that was the most sacred thing. But if you read the scriptures, what they, that they institute is this idea that the most sacred thing in life is not the existence of a space on this planet but a space in your schedule. And really, I believe it's profoundly wise that God has designed this plan to operate this way, that he, he doesn't say you need to go here to have sacred experience, but that you would create in your own schedule a regular rhythm of sacred experience. See, the idea was because God set the pattern to rest after he created the world, that all of his creation would fall into a pattern where they also would rest what, what it became to the nation of Israel, however, was something different. It, became some, it, w- it went from something that was important to, to really something that was a badge of their status. It became a method of proving how devout that you were. And really, the, the system itself became not what it was supposed to be. It became this badge to show how impressive you were And really, they took it too far. In fact, uh, I was reading about some of the things that they added on to the idea of what God said should take place on the Sabbath, and they they came up with these extra laws that, for instance, if you dislocated part of your body, it couldn't be reset on the Sabbath. You had to wait. So if you dislocated your hand, you had to wait till the next day. I think I would break that one. If you had to write something down, you couldn't write more than a single letter. Let's, I mean, February, Feb, you just write you know, one letter to, to signify what you're talking about there. If a building fell down, you you couldn't, All so, so if a house fell down, right, you could only remove enough of the building materials of the rubble to see if anybody was still alive. Otherwise, you had to come back after sunset to fix it. I'm thinking, are, are you kidding me? Like, th- this has become too far, and so this... This is the idea of the world that Jesus enters into when he becomes a man. And so God shows up, he, he becomes human, and he's living out, and he's living amongst this society where people have taken what he meant to be a good thing for your benefit, and they've made it into something different. They made it a platform of self-righteousness that became a slave an, an enslaving law towards them. So we're going to look at a text in Matthew chapter two, and as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter or Mark, sorry, Mark chapter two, um, we're in this sort of this so, this setting where Jesus is going to break their extended idea of what the Sabbath was supposed to be, and, and it's going to ignite quite a controversy where people are going to be furious about him. And it all comes because Jesus is walking, it's early summer, he's walking through the fields with his disciples, his closest followers, and as they go through the fields, they're picking some of the heads of the grain, and they're having something to eat to satisfy their hunger. Now, in their society, that would have been totally fine to do on any day except for the Sabbath. And so we pick it up in Mark chapter 2, in a section of Mark where he's focusing his reader's attention on the idea of who Jesus claims to be. And really, it's who does Jesus claim to be in in this controversy of what happens when he does work on the Sabbath. And so Mark chapter 2, and verse 23, it says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Uh, God, I've really come to enjoy this particular passage. Um, At first, it was somewhat peculiar to see why Jesus responds the way that he does. But the more that uh, the more that I looked at it, the more that I studied it, really you just revealed how this is something incredibly important for us. And I pray that that would become clear. Lord, I pray that whatever the the schedule of our life is, whatever is God of our time, would bow to you. That we would look to you and how it is that we should love you and love others and, and even how we should be loving to ourselves as we consider how we manage our time. We ask this in your son Jesus' name, amen. What I wanna do is, is really focus on those two concluding statements that Jesus makes. That, that Number one, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then Jesus coming along and, and saying at the very end that the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath because that's his ultimately, that's, that's his response. So the setting is that they're, they're traveling through this field they pick some heads of grain, and off in the distance are these religious, self-righteous, the, the leaders of the nation, and they're looking at them in, in judgment, and they're just waiting for him to do something wrong, and, and they see him, and aha, we got him. Look at that. He's taken a head of grain, and he's eaten it. How dare he do that on the Sabbath? Now, you can sort of see some of the irony beginning. I mean, he's hungry. They're, they're walking. This is Jesus and his disciples moving through a field. But, but still, it created quite the argument for how their world operated. And so when he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, what he's doing is he's clarifying the relationship between this idea of a regular rhythm of rest and humanity. That one exists for the other, not the other way around that the idea of the Sabbath had gone terribly wrong in the nation of Israel and that it had no longer been beneficial and had now become something they were enslaved to, this idea of exactly what you were able to do and not do. And, and, and Jesus comes along and he, he says, you sort of got this confused, that you thought that you could follow all the rules. And if you followed all the rules, then that would make you something important. But that's not the case. This day is important. And by stopping to enjoy it, its importance comes to you. It's not that you are serving this day. It's that this day serves you. It's it's amazing how far they took this in Jesus' time. In fact, there's one particular episode a couple hundred years before Jesus where the nation of Israel was being attacked on the Sabbath. And what do you do? Because really, to fight a war would fall into the category of work. And so one particular regiment just chose not to fight. And they got defeated. And then the rest of the regiments were standing around thinking, what do we do here? And they had a debate, and they decided, we should probably fight back next time. Thinking, you probably should have told those guys before that happened. But that's how far they took it. And Jesus is going, look, look, look. There's a positive element of rest and reflection and worship where you pause. And, and the idea of the renewal that it brings must overwhelm the negative aspects of it being a law and it being oppressive and bring, being enslaving to you. Because it's when, the, when it's the other way around, something important about it has gone missing. If you're doing this to work, to prove that you've kept a day where you don't work, you've defeated the purpose. I loved, uh, growing up, I loved the show, the movie, The Transformers. And, And Transformers is built around this idea that you got this alien robot that turns into a tractor trailer, of all things. But Optimus Prime, Optimus Prime, and you see him all the time. He keeps, he keeps saying things like, you know, we can't do that. We've got to guard the humans. We've got to guard the humans. We've got to guard. We have to guard. Well, in the, the most recent Transformers, the last night, I think it's the most recent one anyway, uh, the last night, the, the sort of the plot is that Optimus Prime is brainwashed or that he's reprogrammed. And now all of a sudden, instead of guarding, he's the aggressor, he's the attacker. And he's not working for humanity, he's working against humanity. That, that's what Jesus is saying has happened here. That in an effort to become so incredibly self-righteous, you've redefined the nature of the system. And it stopped being about what it was about. It stopped being a guard. And now it attacks you. It attacks and defeats the very purpose of what it was about. God was wise enough to say that you're going to need something sacred. You're going to need a guard, but you can't let the guard work against you. It cannot become so important that the negative overwhelms the positive. You do realize you need that guard, right? You need that guard. In fact, if you were to just kind of zoom out and take like this 50,000-foot view of your life and just, just look at your life. Look at the things that wore you down. Look at the things that were exhausting. There's seasons w- when really it was, just, it was just too much for you. How profound is it for God to say, there are times when you need a guard to remind you that this is not all there is to life, that whatever you're experiencing right here and right now is not the end all be all. And so to regularly just step back and say, despite everything that's on this side of the week or on this side of the week, there's something sacred right now, right here in my time with God, that he loves me, that he cares about me. The scriptures often will speak about the pursuit of God pursuing humanity as if, as if it's one spouse infatuated pursuing Another. And I was thinking about this and, and when you know, Corinne and I first met, and the lengths that I would go to to even just hear her voice, to have a second of her attention. This is God's desire to be with you. He created that relationship of husband and wife and marriage. He created that relationship to be a, a reminder of the picture of His desire to be with us and to regularly pause to, to say, what, what is it, God? that I'm missing here? What if I become so just caught up in in the moment that I forget who you are, and I forget what you're doing, and I forget what's really important? And so God has instituted the Sabbath as a guardian to say, your time has, has begun to work against you. And really, it's a guardian from your own management of what time should be. It's a guardian of your own ability to mismanage all of life. To say, just stop and reset, reorient, and re- refocus. Because otherwise, it if, if could become something unnecessarily negative. And, and so Jesus, in that first statement, when he says, look, the, the Sabbath was not made for, or man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. He says, don't be naive into thinking that this guard won't, won't turn on you if you don't let it. It exists for you. You don't exist for it. And and so two questions really is, number one, is it working for you? Have you entered a regular rhythm of rest? And remember our challenge, our challenge was to give it a try for two months. Two months, and and I'd love to hear how it's going. I've heard from one person that's really quite incredible how how God has has worked there. but I'd love to hear your story. Even, even, if, you're, even if you're like, we're, we're uh, in the fourth sermon in the series. And even if you're right now, you're like, fine, I'll, I'll give it a try. Cool, two months. Try it for two months. Two months of your life. If you, zoom on, if you zoom out and you look at it from 50,000 feet, I think you'll find two months is not that big of a deal for you to experience what God has done when he's instituted a guard for your own schedule, for your own benefit. Second question is in an effort to keep it so rigidly has it begun to work against you. See, there's two, there's two extremes there, and Jesus doesn't want either for you. But really, in what he's arguing in response to this accusation where, how could you eat this? This is the lesser of his two arguments. This is his opening argument. This is his, his, it's just his his attention getter. The greater, the much, much, much greater point in what he says is when he goes on and he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And what he does to to communicate this is he tells that story of David. And so he tells the story of David who was king, but he wasn't crowned king yet, and how David was... uh, was on the run, and technically speaking, because you had an evil king on the hunt for him. David's an outlaw and he's got a group of men with him, they're just exhausted. I mean, when we talk about on the run, it's not like modern-day society, and, and you could get in a car and drive and you know, stop for a bite of food on the way, uh, you know, grab, grab a sandwich at, at chick-fil-A on the way. It, this was like desert where you just ran and you were exhausted and if those guys had horses and you didn't, it, this was a never-ending struggle. And there comes a point where they make it to the temple and they know there's food inside the temple. And although the food was consecrated, it was, it was set aside just for the priests. David and his, 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 uh, his, I don't know if you just want to call them his buddies or his pals or whatever, uh, they decide they're going to eat the bread. Now, in hindsight, nobody argued it was wrong. Looking back on it, they're like, well, of course, he's the king. Are you going to imply that the king should have starved to death when there's food 10 feet away from him? Should, should the king go without eating? No, what Jesus is doing, he, he's saying, certainly being king entitled David to certain privileges. Certainly it would make sense. Nobody nobody would rationally argue that the king should starve to death if there's food right around the corner. And and so what he's saying is David was more than entitled to satisfy his hunger. And And so here's the point. If David could do it as king, he set a precedent that anybody greater than David would certainly be able to do likewise. That David was king and he was allowed to do this. And standing before them is one even greater than David. Their highest regarded man in, in history. And so it's a comparison that his audience would not have missed. Because Jesus' claim is that if you think that King David w- was, was impressive, if you think that his prestige entitled him to certain things, then you're really not understanding what's standing in front of you right now. That I'm not necessarily just some human king, but I'm God in the flesh. And so if the king was allowed the consecrated bread, is God entitled in human form to take some heads off the grain? See, what he's saying is quite profound. Again, put it in the context of the Sabbath is their most sacred thing. And Jesus says, I'm God of the Sabbath. I'm Lord over it. And standing in front of them in that very moment was not just somebody who would who, who would live on the Sabbath and would follow Sabbath rules, but who created the Sabbath. And it put them in a moment of decision of who is this guy? This guy that they just accused to be breaking a law is going, you're missing the point. I'm God. And really it called for either a response that was, this is the highest blasphemy. This is the most ridiculous thing that anybody could claim. Or this is, this is one who's worthy of the highest honor. It's God. This isn't the only time Jesus makes a claim on the Sabbath. We looked at John 5 last week where Jesus heals somebody and they say, how could you heal somebody on the Sabbath? And, and, uh, and Jesus' response is, well, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. In other words... God's working, why should it surprise you if I work as well? Because I'm also God. And really what you see is this claim for equality. And the controversy, the controversy came because they were upset that Jesus didn't recognize the day. And Jesus says the real controversy is not what day it is. The real controversy is whether or not you recognize me, whether or not you understand that this whole system was instituted. Just for you, but ultimately, it was instituted by me. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. This is, this is my authority over And so when we talk about rest, we talk about it in, in this context. And it's, it's incredibly important. I want you to get both of the things that Jesus says here. Uh, the first, first is that the God of rest has created us to hold to, anticipate, and enjoy a rhythm of rest. The God of rest has created us to hold to, anticipate, and enjoy a rhythm of rest. However, what you ultimately need is not simply to manage your time better, but to know the God of time. What you really need at the end of the day is not to just manage your time more wisely, it's to know the God who created time. And so I guess that's my real question. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? What the scripture presents as a husband jealous for us in a loving and compassionate and considering way, wanting to pursue us and have a relationship to the point to the point where he would die on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our wrong and with the power to raise from the grave so that we could live with him after we die. He will bring you the rest that your soul craves. After all, he's the God of rest. He's has God of rest over the things that keep you up at night. He's the God of rest over the things that, that cause you fear in the future. And he'll offer you what your busyness can never offer you. In Matthew 11, he says this. He says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you a rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Busyness. Busyness will steal your rest and pay you in weariness. Busyness will steal your peace and pay you in burdens. And Jesus offers something far more profound. The God of time offers you a rest for your soul. And the appeal of the Sabbath is for once a week to make sure that you've guarded yourself from failing to experience it. That you've taken the time to enjoy what that rest looks like. That the Sabbath does not work against you, but works for you. Because you know the God of time. I have two challenges I I want you to kind of take with you this week and and think through. Um, And the first one is really, it's quite simple. I want you to experience a different pace. It's a nice way of saying, slow down. I want you to experience life at a different pace. Because I think when you do, I think I, I mentioned that 50,000-foot view. I think you're going to see things. I think you're going to be a different person. Uh, I, I mentioned a, in a sermon a few weeks ago, Mark Buchanan, he talks about the rest of God. And he writes and, and he says this. He says, someone asked me recently, what, my, what was my biggest regret in life? I thought a moment, surveying the vast and cluttered landscape of my blunders and losses, the evil I had done and the evil that's been done against me. Being in a hurry, I said. What happens when you're in a hurry? How does it change you? Especially if this is who you are. How does that transform you? For me, when I'm in a hurry, everything becomes slightly less important. Everything becomes slightly less worth my time. And wherever else I have to be is more important than where I am. I'm rarely content, and I rarely value people the way that I should. A couple years ago, I I took uh, a boater, boater safety course to be able to of all things, paddle a kayak on a lake. You need to take a course for it. So I took a boater safety course, and, uh, and the biggest thing they stress, aside from a life jacket, is the concept of a wake So wherever your boat goes, you know, as it moves water, it displaces it to the side behind you and it creates what's called a wake. So if you're sitting, you know, on a nice calm, uh, you know, lake and, and you're on your inner tube and somebody cruises past with a speedboat, the wave that comes and knocks you off into the water and makes you mad is the wake. And so what they teach you is this idea of you're responsible for your wake. Because wherever you go, the faster you go, the bigger the object is, the more wake that it creates. And so if you, if you knock over a boat over here and damage it, it's your responsibility to pay for it because your wake created it. What I've learned from my life to stop and reflect through the rest that God has for me is that busyness creates a wake and i don't see it because i'm constantly looking what's in front of me and i'm focused on where i'm going and i fail to realize that my my life and my actions and my need to be somewhere else has created a wake that trails behind me that as i live as if the next place is always so important people begin to sense that they're not so important that they're not so valuable And I don't seem to notice how my way can knock somebody over. I would love for you to experience a different pace. I've started this journey like I've challenged you. um, That's important to me to always live out what we're talking about. Uh, And and what I've found is uh, it's it's easier for me to enjoy less. It's easier for me to enjoy less. In other words, I'm more easily happy. I find that I'm more prone to celebrate things with the importance that they have instead of just moving on. That I'm just much more awake. Uh, Someone else I talked to said, and, and I agree, they just, everything's brighter. That I don't mind when things actually take time. That healthy boundaries are actually healthy. I would love for you to do that. Not to let it become your God, but to let your God have a piece of your time that's sacred. I would love to hear what it is that is your change. You drop me an email, give me a call, stop in. I'd love to hear what your, your experience in this has been. For me, I, honestly, I can tell you, it's, it's like when, when my family, when we leave here and we drive three hours straight to get to the mountains where we got a little piece of land and, and we're just in the car the whole way there and you get out and that first, first breath of mountain air. And it's just so rejuvenating, so refreshing. And and if you were to zoom out, isn't that what you need on a regular basis? A breath of fresh mountain air to say, God, this is your time. And I'm going to take time to enjoy some of the things that you say are most important. A hurried life just wishes our days to be over fast. That's not how God made us to be. Second second challenge is within that, within that different pace, that you would take time to nurture relationships. Take time to nurture relationships. I love that word nurture because not every relationship is as it should be. And sometimes it takes real, just genuine time. And it takes understanding and it takes compassion and it takes listening. That our friends and our family, the, the people that are most important in our life, that we would just, we would just make a weekend of it. Just enjoy the people and let let, let those be refueled. Let them be replenished that we can take the time to enjoy. There's something so powerful about being known and loved and having close bonds. We started this uh, community group on first and third Thursday nights. And and I just love, I cherish the time where we can connect with other people and just sit down and, and, and not rush through something and just enjoy getting together with people. God created us for this. And so, why not take the time to slow down and nurture relationships and develop close bonds? One of my friends and I were chatting uh, this past week, and he he just in regular casual conversation, he said a saying that was yeah it sounds like a saying everybody else would say, but it was special to him uh, He said, "Make haste slowly, make haste slowly and I said Dale, you got to tell me what that means. <laughs> I said, it sounds like really wise, but I don't have a clue what you mean by it. What is it? Make haste slowly, and, and these are his words. He said, well, Matt, uh, it's, a, it's a pappy stump saying. It was his grandfather. It's a pappy stump saying. He said he, said, he was a fearless, wiry, small-statured, self-centered man that stood down to no one. He lost his much younger wife to cancer and his kids as well through his own bitterness. Jesus got a hold of the man and did a miraculous life change. Ended up teaching classes in church and became a much respected and well-liked individual. But he always had the extra motivation to just get it done. The term slowly, I believe, came through Christ as Pappy's wisdom increased and his priorities changed for the cause of Christ. In other words, make haste slowly means don't be in such a hurry to get things done that you miss the most important things. Sure, be driven. Sure, have goals, have agenda. This is part of being successful as a human being. But make haste slowly. And don't overpass and overlook some of the most important things. Don't have a wake that trails behind you that makes people feel the way that you don't want them to feel. Wherever you are, be all there let the God of time delight in unhurried time with you. Let's pray. Our Father God, I love you and praise you. Lord, I thank you for saving me. Not just my soul from an eternity without you, but even more practically from a day-to-day perspective to to be saved from the, the dread of time over my life. Lord, to be able to just enjoy the world as you made it. Enjoy the people that you've placed around us. Lord, I pray that's true of all of us. We say often that we want to be a church that loves you and loves people. I don't know what speaks a greater volume than when we speak love with our time. Lord, it might mean that we don't accomplish all the things that we want to accomplish in life. But at the same time, it might very well mean that we accomplish what exactly you have for us to accomplish and what deep down we long to accomplish, to love you and love others well. In your name we pray, amen.